Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Kick is live. It is Thursday night, February 2nd, the year of our Lord, 2023. Sometimes good things can be found even in the worst of stories. You know my feelings on the college football playoff. It doesn't matter. It's coming. So what is my job? My job is to cheer myself up. And if you get cheered up in the process, so be it. I think we found some positives and we will delve into such positives tonight. We're jam-packed high atop a wintry downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Going to talk about the 12-team era that is rapidly approaching us. I've got copious amounts of National Signing Day thoughts. Uh, maybe some angles that previously uh, you haven't heard taken. I got some numbers that will blow your mind. Stats and info has been hard at work today. There are rumors, there are, there are hoof beats that we can hear off in the distance that indicate we may have some pretty high-profile coordinator hires pending. We'll see. Could change even as we're on air here tonight. And we got a very, very special viewer question. Asking me, and therefore asking all of us here, why we happen to love college football, maybe more so than the NFL. I have my answers. Maybe you don't even feel that way, but if you do, go ahead and start gathering your answers. I'm not going to do it now. So as we progress throughout the program, you can start to formulate your own thoughts there. Rancho Mirage, California tuned in. Apopka, Florida tuned in. Darlington, Georgia is tuned in. And guess what? Because so many of you have tuned in and made your thoughts known on how this program should be structured, Late Kick Extra is back this coming Tuesday. Late Kick Extra, because we have hundreds of thousands of new followers and subscribers, is simply this. In the uh, time of year that some casuals would call the off-season, we don't take a break. But what we do is we structure the way we do things a little bit. And so every Monday night, or thereabouts, Monday afternoon, Monday night, I'll put out the call on social. Instagram and Twitter, at Lake Kick Josh, and I'll say, give me your questions. Ideally, they'd be college football related. They don't have to be. And then I just do this long form, could be 30 minutes, could be two hours podcast only. You don't get it on YouTube. It's strictly podcast every Tuesday. And we are going to start that this coming Tuesday. And veterans amongst us, sophomores, juniors, and seniors at Pate State, for example, they know that invariably, those late kick extra pods provide some of the best content that we produce all year. Like we try to structure the regular old fashioned show the way you want it, but something about that free flowing, totally ad libbed audio only version. It's it's great. It's like vintage eighties DJ style. You don't really see me, but yet we're talking about stuff that we all understand. We all share. It's, it's a beautiful thing. So anyway, that's coming. Uh, make sure you're following on Twitter and Instagram at late kick Josh. For that, amongst other things, make sure you're following there. Um, I, I got to talk to you about the playoff. I just, I, I do need to address something. Big rumor out there. And I didn't want to touch on it, but Director Collins shamed me, and he said, they, you owe it to them. Director Collins said, you owe the people an explanation. So it's about the rumors. 
regarding me and Margot Robbie. I got a little statement that I want to read. I am aware of the rumors regarding myself and Margot Robbie. That's the statement. That's all I want to say right now. All right, let's get into the show. The college football playoff is going to change. We know that. I think we have a question about it, actually. That's where this entire segment was derived from. Someone was asking us on Twitter earlier about the college football playoff. When it changes to the 12-team format, what's it going to be like? Will college football change? That's what Happy Vol said. And you know my thoughts on this. So what I want to tell you right up front is this is not a relitigation of whether the playoff should expand. That's already happening. It's already done. And uh, I've shared my thoughts. And if you're new around here, here it is in one sentence. I'm not a fan of it, but I accept that it's happening. So what I'm still trying to do, and instead what I'm going to try and do here is I do think that there are some positive aspects to this. This has never been, nor is it now, a scenario to me that is totally negative. I think the negatives may outweigh the positives, but like I said, I'm not here to litigate that. So what I am here to do is talk about the positives and just hope I'm wrong about the negatives. Of course I'm not, but let's hope I'm wrong about the negatives. The first thing, the first glowing bit of positive news that will come from the 12-team playoff era to me is I think it just kills the nonsensical aspects of hot seat conversation. Not the six and six, not the five and seven or the four and eight. Those guys are going to be on the hot seat pretty much at any program that has reasonable expectation. But I got folks out there calling for Ryan Day's job, which is just dumb. And yes, he did make the playoff this past year uh, because other teams lost for them to make the playoff. Last year, he didn't make the playoff. In future iterations of the playoff, both of Ryan Day's previous two versions of the Buckeyes would have been in the playoff, whether they beat Michigan or not, whether they won the Big Ten or not, because they're just a good enough team to be in. Now, again, I'm not here to tell you I'm a, I'm a big fan of lowering the bar to let those teams in. That's not what this segment's about because it's going to happen. So I guess one of the positive aspects of that happening is I don't think I'm going to have to listen to nearly as many people say, Ryan Day should be fired. Ryan Day should be on the hot seat or, or a, a coach that finished ninth in the country or 13th or however deep this field's going to go. I don't think I'm going to have to listen to that nonsense quite as much because now all of a sudden, more guys are going to get to say, we made the playoff. What does that mean? I don't know if the value decreases in enough people's minds to warrant not talking like that anymore. But right now, you know what I mean. I'm talking about programs with high expectations and when they don't make the playoff, which is currently four teams deep, it's caused to just burn the whole thing down and start over from scratch. I don't think I'm going to have to deal with that quite as much. And if in the aggregate, that is a byproduct of this, then that is a positive. This past year, for example, USC finished 10th. And that's, I think, after... All right, so this is if a 12-team playoff field would have been implemented. So this is the whole what-if thing. It's the, it's the hypothetical field. USC would have, would have been in as a 10 seed. Penn State would have been in. Um, Tennessee would have been in. Kansas State would have been in. So... Some years, we don't deal with what I'm talking about, but other years we do. There, there are some years where high expectations aren't quite met, and you only have a pretty good season instead of a phenomenal season. You also get the net result that for every one or two or three teams that make it in, just in front of the curve of the playoff, there are also teams that finish 13th, 14th, 15th that were in the playoff race. So also, you get to say this. How could you put someone on the hot seat that was in the playoff race until the last week of the season? If that happens, then that's a good thing. Because what I'm trying to tell you is, if your coach has your program in a position where they're, they're challenging for a top 10 spot, there is no hot seat conversation to be had. Never. Unless there are extenuating, scandal-related circumstances. That never should be part of the conversation. So I think that's one good thing. The other good thing, which I think may have an expiration date on it, and this is quite frankly a concern of mine, but I think another good thing is for a little while, you guys are going to be right. And by you guys, I mean expansionists, many of whom are in our audience. I don't judge you. I hope you don't judge me. We just disagree on this. But I think you guys are going to be right for a little while. And the expansionist argument is this is not going to delude the regular season, but rather it's going to put more importance on more games. Now, the contingent of anti-expansionists, of whom I am a part of, have always maintained, no, you're just, you're just lowering the bar, and therefore the value 
that you're increasing, you're incre you're decreasing scarcity. So, so you're increasing the amount of playoff spots. Therefore, what goes into securing one of those things and, and the pageantry and the passion that currently goes into that, it'll kind of be diluted also. In other words, grabbing one of 12 is not as meaningful as grabbing one of four. But initially, I think you're right. I think people will treat a playoff spot as valuable as they currently treat a playoff spot. Because I think it's going to take a little while for your mind to be reconditioned to understanding no 11 seeds ever win in the title. Uh, and you can tell me all you want to. It's not about winning a title. Uh, that is absolutely what a postseason structure is about. It's about crowning a champion. Anyone who tells you otherwise is wrong. You want to put 64 teams out there? Then you can tell me it's not about crowning a champion. You got 12? That's absolutely meant to be a tournament to crown a champion. So miss me with that. Not here to relitigate, though, but miss me with that. But the other part is, initially, I think that your mind will not have been reconditioned. So you'll watch a, a game featuring a three-loss team versus another three-loss team in late November, and you'll be glued to it because it's got playoff implications on it. Now, my fear, which I hope is unrealized, but my fear is, like seven years down the road, we've seen enough case study to understand those games really have no relevance in terms of who ultimately gets crowned at the end because those games are just featuring teams that will get blasted once they get in the playoff. Therefore, I'm not going to pretend that this game is something it's not. That's where I think we'll ultimately head. But in the meantime, yes, I do think there's, there are going to be a few years, a few little grace period college football playoff expansion years where a lot of these games featuring teams that otherwise you know, would have been challenging for the Gator Bowl, no disrespect, are all of a sudden challenging for a playoff spot, and it's going to be exciting. I guess that's a positive also. Uh, and lastly, now you know I'm fully on board with putting as many games in home venues as possible, and that includes week one games. I don't like seeing neutral site games in week one, so you know I don't like seeing playoff games in neutral buildings. We're going to get home games in play, or you're going to be at home playoff games. We're going to get playoff games in college football stadiums at least one round. Now, my follow-up question is, how many more are they going to give you? Because right now, it looks like that's all you're going to get. Uh, what would it be? The second round, I guess. The second round of games, which is four games, right, Jesse? That's all it would be. It would be four playoff games that are going to be played in Ann Arbor or, or Tuscaloosa or wherever. That's better than nothing. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you're watching our brethren on Sundays and the conversations they're currently having, the Super Bowl has always been neutral site. They're talking about making the conference championship games in the NFL neutral site. These folks we're talking about who are structuring the college football playoff, they are not me. They are not you. They could not care less about the things we love about the sport. They are of that mentality. They are of maximiza maximization of revenue, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. I just think that there are some things that end up uh, being lost that went into baking what was valuable to begin with in the chase for revenue. It's an age-old problem. It's not a college football problem. I don't think that we're going to get nearly what we want in terms of home playoff games, but we will get some, so that's good. So anyway, my answer is, I think it's very much a mixed bag that you get with the expanded playoff. My problems have always been overarching, but even as I've stated my problems, I've always told you, like I did here, there are a few things, and, and if you can... If you could focus on those, and if I can focus on those, I guess I can have a nice cheery conversation about the college football playoff. All right, uh, let's continue on because I got a lot to hit tonight. I appreciate you guys being tuned in. Make sure that you click the thumbs up button. I was sitting with Steve Wiltfong yesterday, and he said, you say that a lot. Wiltfong is a loyal listener, next day listener, but a loyal listener and, and viewer of the, of the show. That's why he's got a chalice of supremacy in his den up there in Indianapolis. And I said, yes, Steve and I do. Because in the olden days, you didn't have to do any of that. You know, if we were airing the show on ESPN circa 2001, your viewership was enough. It would be reflected in the Nielsen numbers. But in our world, in the digital media world, the reason why I ask you guys to do that is because likes on videos, subscriptions, all of these things are free, by the way, subscriptions to YouTube channels, follows and subscriptions in a podcast feed, that is kind of like our ratings book. That along with audience retention metrics. In other words, how long you watch or listen. Uh, that's it. That, that is our currency. That is how 
advertisers decide where they're going to spend their money. And so when I ask you that stuff, yeah, it looks good when we got a bunch of likes on it. It's also the lifeblood of a channel. So if it gets annoying, there's a very, very easy way to shut me up. Like the video. That's it. And subscribe to the channel. National Signing Day is in our rearview mirror. Still a few unsigned kids out there, but a vast, vast, vast majority have found a home. I want to go over a bunch of things, and none of these things I'm going to spend a lot of time on because, quite frankly, there are a lot of places to go. I'm not going to bore you with talking about how great Bama's class was. Yeah, it was great. I think everyone and their mother knows about that now. Bama with the number one class in the country, third highest rated class of all time. I have um, a really, really big spot in my heart for Yanze Pierre, who is a five-star kid. He was vaulted up like 90 spots in the final rankings. I have talked to our rankings council, and I have had them explicitly express to me what the rankings process was, because I know what the talk has been. I mosey on over there to BamaOnline.com sometimes, and I know some people thought highly of that kid for a long time, and I know in turn also why maybe the updated evals were a little bit slower to happen than some Bama fans wanted. But anyway, I think he's one of the 10 best players in the country. I am not on the rankings council, so that does not matter. But I happen to think very highly of him. And when you get to pair him with Keon Keeley, could be ultra, ultra fierce in pass rush for Alabama very, very soon. So they've got a ton of kids. I could do an entire show just talking about Alabama signing class. But I won't put you through that tonight. What I do want to do is I want to, I got to post it here with some wild numbers. I'm going to read you in a second. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you about Nicholas Harbor. And we're going to play some video in a second. Hold, hold the video for just a second. Nicholas Harbor had his name all over the place yesterday. So he is a five-star athlete, first and foremost. Could be an edge guy, could be a tight end. No matter what position he plays, Total space alien. 6'5", 225. Now, that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing you need to know is it was back and forth for a long time. Looked like South Carolina. Then it looked like Oregon. Then it looked like South Carolina. And I, I want to make sure I bookmark this because I'll forget it if I don't. He ultimately ended up committing to and signing with South Carolina. So I guess the first thing we need to do is congratulate Shane Beamer and Jessica Jackson and the Gamecocks up there. Remember the recruiting coordinators. And the second thing that I want to tell you, and this is the part I'm going to circle back on, is I saw some conspiracy theories out there about how maybe this recruitment wasn't quite that dramatic. You know, maybe the drama was being manufactured for clicks. Quite sure people know how the SEO game works, who continue to use the term clickbait, by the way. Anyway, I, your dutiful behind-the-scenes correspondent, were, was, your eyes and ears on this recruitment. So I'm going to tell you how it went down in just a second. But the first thing I want to do, for those of you who don't care about the behind-the-scenes stuff, is I got to show you track video of Nicholas Harbour. Because he is an alien. 6'5", 225. Imagine what you think that looks like running track. And now I'm going to show you what it actually looks like. And for those of you on podcast, I want you to picture a kid twice the size of everyone else on the track. It looks fake. And then I want you to picture him completely pulling away. And if you could have a Sarah McLaughlin special in track and field, you're watching it right now. Because the rest of those kids might as well be in the arms of an angel. How does a human being of that size versus other humans of a relative smaller size move this fast? I don't know. But Shane Beamer got him. Now, here's the concern. It's a great concern to have. He is such an elite athlete, he potentially has Olympic track and field in his future. So that is the concern these days. The concern used to be, are we even going to put a competitive product on the field? Now it is, are our players a little bit too good? Are we going to lose them to the Olympics? Great problem to have. So congratulations to Shane Beamer. Now, before I move on, let me go back to the conspiracies. I, I love a good conspiracy. And before I came to work at CBS and 24-7, I was a member of this site, just like you guys are, most of you anyway. And I used to traffic. When a kid that I wanted to be ranked four stars was only three stars, I knew that there had to be bias involved. And when there was a lot of drama, and this is the one I really used to latch myself onto, when there was a lot of drama, when the Steve Wilfongs of the world, when the Andrew Ivans of the world when they kept going back and forth and then the crystal ball feature came along and they kept flipping that crystal ball, 
When it kept going back and forth approaching signing day, I used to think I was smarter than the rest of the room, and I would say, those guys know what they're doing. They know they're in the click business. And so, I'm here now, and I think most of you who have watched the program for quite a while know I'm not hesitant to criticize us when we do something dumb. I, I'm, not, I'm not hesitant to criticize our own show here, certainly when we do something dumb, and it, it happens, mainly my fault. But it happens. But I did want to give you a little perspective. So me and Wolfong were over in the other studio yesterday. We were doing blowout wall-to-wall national signing day coverage. And I got to tell you, I actually think that kid's recruitment was even wilder than they led on. Because I got to be witness to it. I got to listen to coaches off the record. I got to listen to people close to the recruitment off the record. It was a fight. It was a fight. Between Oregon and South Carolina, Maryland had been in there and they faded a little bit. It's really incredible, especially when I don't have to put my name behind a pick and I really do just get to be a fly on the wall. It's crazy. And I'm an extremely sore loser. This is what I told Wilt Fong. I lost to management in ping pong the other day. One of my two losses in the history of this office, I lost to management and it affected the next 48 hours of my life. It's a problem. I'm trying to deal with it. I may need help. I don't lose very well. And that's just a ping pong match. I told Wilt Fong, what if I were Dan Lanning and that staff at Oregon? And I think at one point the track coach stayed back from a meet so he could meet with Nicholas Harbor and Phil Knight. They had Phil Knight meet with him and talk about what it's like to be a Nike athlete. And anyway, you invest just months and months and in some cases years into recruitment and it feels like it just, it just flips over the past 12 hours three times. I respect you guys because I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't handle it. And Oregon still signed a great class. But the thing about it is I would just remember the kids I didn't get. I, I would remember the ones that I missed on. And so anyway, I'm trying to tell you, no, there was not an ounce of manufacturing drama there for clicks. In fact, if we wanted to, we probably could have really peeled back the veil and gotten more clicks. And those wouldn't have mattered either because no one really cares about clicks on social media. All right, I, I wanna talk to you about Kentucky, but not necessarily Kentucky's class. This is not an expose on Mark Stoops and the goings on in Lexington. I just wanted to illustrate something for you. And you know when I have a post-it note on my hand, it means that we're gonna do the post-it pop. Not quite like the paper pop, but the post-it pop is also important. First off, I want to read you Kentucky's class, okay, to illustrate where they fit in the grand scheme of things. So Kentucky had a good class. Kentucky finished 31st overall. All of America. Kentucky signs the 31st ranked class. They had eight four-stars in the class. They had 11 three-stars. And that's really good. That is really good. That would be good for fifth in the ACC. It would be good for fifth in the Big 12. It's 12th. They finished 12th in the SEC. They only got 14 teams down there. Kentucky, they almost finished top 30. They finished 12th in their own conference. Now comes the post-it here. Producer Jesse tells me, the SEC has signed 102 of the top 247. Let me repeat for emphasis. We got a top 247. Those are the top 247 players in the country. SEC currently has 102 of them, with still a few outliers remaining. It could get even worse than that. The SEC has 102 of the top 247. That's more than the Pac-12, the Big Ten, and the ACC combined. And they play pretty good football in those conferences. And don't tell me they don't have the talent in the Big Ten and the ACC footprints. You may be able to talk about the Pac-12 a little bit more, but they also have a state called California out there. 102 of the top 247 in the SEC footprint. Uh, I mean, Florida has the 14th ranked class in the country. And it is being viewed by some people because of what happened with Jaden Rashada as a disappointment. Like, think about having to exist in that climate where you finish top 15 and yet you're sitting there and people are saying, yeah, but, yeah, but. The SEC has also now finished with the number one recruiting class in the country every year since 2009. A lot of them have been Bama. I think this was their 10th overall number one class in the last 13 or so years. And I kind of made that stat up, but the, but the spirit of it is true. 
And that's the standard we hold ourselves to around. It's okay to make up a stat as long as the spirit of the stat is accurate. And that's exactly what they taught me in journalism school. All right, uh, Miami. Let me ask you a question. What did you expect from Mario Cristobal when he got to Miami? I, personally, did not expect them to immediately compete for fill-in-the-blank. I, I didn't expect them to get beat by the teams they got beat by last year, but the first thing I thought about when Mario went to Miami is, ooh, recruiting! And they just signed the number one class in the ACC. They signed, at this point, the number seven class in the country. So that's what I expected from him. And also, I guess we haven't talked about this. Remember, I was hinting around for several weeks there were more staff changes coming down there. And yes, it happened finally. Josh Gaddis was shown the door, so he's not the offensive coordinator there anymore. So my point is, they signed multiple kids in this class that will be immediate contributors, namely on the offensive line. And hopefully the offense rectifies itself a little bit more this year. I will just, I will promise you, and this is fresh off the heels of my disastrous Texas A&M proclamation last year, but I will promise you Texas, or, uh, Miami's going to be better this year than they were last year. And you may say, that's not a bold statement at all. I know. That's why I'm promising it in February or February, as some of my buddies would say. I want to speak about another school right quick. I told you, this is going to be random. I'm picking out stuff that stands out to me. Could we discuss Michigan State for just a second? I know, like I said, kind of random. Follow me here, though. They um, Look at the posture I've struck. They finished number 23 for the second year in a row. Finished with the 23rd ranked class in the country. Pause button. Is that good or bad to you? I hear some of you saying, okay, there you go. I have such a connection that you're talking in your car 24 hours after I recorded this, and yet I still get where you're going. The live chat now, I'm looking at it, and well, we actually kind of got a mixture. I think a lot of people are underwhelmed with this signing class for Michigan State. And this comes with the territory of making $9.5 million a year if you're Mel Tucker. What used to be good enough is no longer good enough. So I asked producer Jesse earlier today, I said, Jesse, how does this stack up to how they have been recruiting? And producer Jesse went back a few years, and this is what it sounds like. Two, four, five, six. These are the last seven signing classes at Michigan State. 36, 30, 31, 44, 46, here comes Mel Tucker, 23, 23. Now, if you're comparing them to what Georgia's doing, no. This is a, a precipitous drop-off, but we don't, or we shouldn't, be comparing Mel Tucker at Michigan State to what Kirby Smart at Georgia's done. We should be comparing him to what Michigan State's done. And compared to what Michigan State's done, he's recruited a whole lot better, and he's done it two cycles in a row. I just think that no one cares about what they have done because they would come right back and they would say, yeah, but that was before we got a taste of success last year, if we're being real, and that was also before... We started paying Mel Tucker uh, a third of the entire budget of the state of Michigan, it seems like. So I get both sides. I've always maintained on this show, it doesn't matter if you pay him $19.5 million a year. Your program is capable of what it's capable of. You're capable of what you're capable of. And you don't get to justify warped expectations just because you threw a lot of money at someone. That doesn't make sense in college football or in life. If you're 5'10", and you can't dunk, and then I say, here's $10 million, go dunk for me, and you still can't dunk, how dumb would it be for me to be pissed off at you? I'm the one who paid some kid who's 5'10", to dunk. I just blew $10 million on him. I'm not telling you, by the way, Michigan State's blowing money on Mel Tucker. I am saying people who are upset they didn't finish top 10 may be a little bit more of a problem than Mel Tucker is the problem. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. It turned into a spicy Michigan State segment all of a sudden. And also, everyone's favorite, America's favorite program. Trust me, if you don't believe me, look at the comments. Colorado. I have a list of schools for you here to listen to. Now I want you to tell me what these programs have in common. Big hitters here. Ohio State. Oregon. Tennessee. Notre Dame. Florida. Penn State. Clemson. Florida State. Auburn, Michigan, what do they have in common? Well, 
Those are all programs that recruited less five stars through the portal and through recruiting than Colorado did. You look at the composite five-star rankings, and Colorado landed more five stars when you combine portal and recruiting than that entire list that I just read off to you. Ohio State's in there, Tennessee, Oregon's in there, and uh, that's the Deion Sanders effect. They're ranked 21st. The recruiting class is ranked 21st. The transfer class, the portal class is ranked 5th. Two five-stars, six four-stars. This is the University of Colorado. This is where you have to understand some context. I love when we get new viewers and listeners. I love when college football gets new fans. Understand something, though. If you live in St. Paul and you've been a Minnesota Vikings fan your whole life and you're just kind of delving into college football, you, because you don't know any better, you're not stupid, you're just ignorant to how recruiting works, you could fool yourself into looking at this and saying, big deal, 21st? Well, it's not even top 20, right? Uh, this is Colorado. That's, you, can, you can multiply that number by two or three, and then that would be more in line with where you would expect the Colorado Buffaloes to be landing in recruiting. Huge, phenomenal job being done by Deion Sanders and company out there. So those were my thoughts on National Signing Day. Now, as you know, we'll post this as an individual video over on the YouTube channel, and I will be happy to hear your thoughts and no doubt get scolded for not bringing up your school signing class. I can hear him in Knoxville already. I'm surprised Colin hasn't already yelled in my ear. That's just what stood out to me. Thank you, Colin. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Academy Sports and Outdoors brings a smile to my face every time I say the word. Academy Sports and Outdoors, I have on my screen right now, actually, what they call ad copy. And when you're a partner with a brand and they want you to do ad reads, they'll send you what is called ad copy. That's just, you know, the, the, the boilerplate kind of stuff that you hear. You can tell someone's reading it. And Academy does that for us. But they also, in the next breath, say, this is just for guidance. Say whatever you want to say. This is just a fallback. If you get sick and, and Bradley has to fill in for you, yeah, have Bradley read this. We don't want Bradley working off the cuff, trust me. Down in Columbus once upon a time, we found out what that sounded like. I don't want to get too specific, but he predicted a Vanderbilt upset over Alabama. That's the last time we put Bradley on air. So anyway, here's how I see Academy Sports and Outdoors. Since we just did reflections on signing day, I think of Academy Sports and Outdoors, and then I think about how it overlaps with my life, and I think about all the things that I do. A lot of outdoor stuff, a lot of gym stuff, softball season. Jesse, are you listening? Is rapidly approaching. Get those hamstrings loosened. And the thing about it is Academy Sports and Outdoors is the place where I can go right before I do essentially anything I do recreationally in my life, and they have something for me there. And I had one of you who tested me the other night and said, I bet they don't have this thing, fill in the blank. Can't even remember what the thing was. What I do remember is I got a follow-up message, didn't I? And you said, I cannot believe they had this thing. 
as I, the, the great test of whether there's enough variety at a store is whether they have Big League Chew in the checkout line. The greatest gum ever invented. Academy even has Big League Chew. So you know they got basketball goals for you. You know they got soccer nets for you. You know they got Magellan pullovers and tents and whatnot and grills. They got all that stuff. Academy Sports and Outdoors. You know what else they have? They have the ability to bring this show to you so you don't have to pay for it. Well, if I didn't already sell you on it, that's it. And if you can't get there in person, academy.com has your hookup. Again, I see a lot of people tuned in. I appreciate you guys being tuned in. Be so kind as to click that thumbs up button and subscribe to the channel. There are reports out there, some good old-fashioned reports. Colin, that's a bad endpoint, so here's a better endpoint for you. It sounds like Nick Saban may be ready to make some hires. And by the time you watch this, maybe he already has made a hire. Chris Lowe of ESPN.com, really, really good on this stuff. I highly suggest you're following him if you aren't already. Uh, reported earlier today that Tommy Reese is a big name to watch in the Alabama offensive coordinator search. Now, who is Tommy Reese? Most no, that's the OC at Notre Dame, played at Notre Dame. And I have done a lot of digging on this, not just on Tommy Reese, but on the coordinator searches there. And what I want to tell you is it probably won't come as a shock to know that there have been several guys Nick Saban has spoken to. More on that in a second. You know about Ryan Grubb, the Washington OC, who allegedly interviewed for the job He's staying put at Washington. You know now about Tommy Reese allegedly interviewing, or reportedly, I guess is a more professional term, reportedly interviewing for the job today. Perhaps even as we speak here live on this Thursday evening, you know about those names. There are other names. I, however, um, do not have the liberty to tell you what the, who those names are. And I also have no clue if they've actually been offered a job as the offensive coordinator for Alabama. There is a great big difference. This is what is always emphatically disseminated to me when you get information, and it's hard to get it in coaching searches. There's a big difference in so-and-so talked to somebody versus so-and-so interviewed somebody versus so-and-so offered the job to somebody. So, of course, Nick Saban's talked to several people. The problem is he's the only one who knows what's going on. Sometimes... And this is not exclusive to Saban. It's just the way Saban operates. Sometimes guys leave Tuscaloosa having actually met with him, not knowing if they have an offer or not. But yet I got folks out there with 437 followers on Twitter who supposedly know. So there is not much inside information to be had. And those who do have it aren't talking because they're petrified of what will happen to them if they do talk. And that includes me. So instead, I do want to point out a couple of things because the second that I heard Tommy Reese's name, and a lot of people heard Tommy Reese, maybe the OC at Alabama, I knew what was coming and I was right. Those instincts fail me sometimes, but they came through this time. And it was a great big collective, whomst, why? Let's be professional and let's talk through this for just a second. Points per game when he's been at Notre Dame, okay? Three years as offensive coordinator. They've been 30th, 19th, and 42nd. That's part of the story. Uh, Earmuffs, children. His quarterbacks have been Ian Book, Jack Cohn, Tyler Buckner, Drew Pine. Whew. Okay, remove the earmuffs. That's, just, that's explicit. That is a TVMA special of average affity at quarterback. So my point there is you don't have the slightest clue what Tommy Reese would do with the talent that he would theoretically be working with at Alabama. And here's the main point I want to make to you. Two of them, actually. Nick Saban watched the exact same thing with Georgia you and I watched this year. And that was Todd Munkin put a top five offense on the field. Let me say that again. Todd Munkin had a top five offense, not defense, at Georgia with Stetson Bennett at quarterback approximately zero stars at wide receiver, and uh, by Georgia standards, a pretty average group of tailbacks. How did they do it? They did it because the cumulative effect of a lot of big, strong, fast, physical players normally wears down the modern-day college football defense because the modern-day college football defense has been built to stop pinball machine offenses. That's how. And the second thing I thought was, 
Nick Saban watching that saying, hold up, I used to do this all the time. I did it better than they're doing it. And I got away from it, necessarily, got away from it for a little while. But why not go back to, honestly, what I love doing more with some newer age blended concepts, which is exactly what Tommy Reese's offense is and exactly what several offenses are out there. And he could probably go have his pick of who he wants. Tommy Reese would be fine as the offensive coordinator at Alabama is what I'm saying. And the second thing that I just want to point out to you is, um, as Meemaw used to always tell me, when in doubt about a hire, go find who the best in the business are chasing and believe in that person. Brian Kelly desperately wanted Tommy Reese to follow him to LSU and be his offensive coordinator. Tommy Reese respectfully declined. Nick Saban perhaps wants Tommy Reese to be his offensive coordinator at Alabama. So I, having approximately zero days experience coaching a college football team, could sit behind this microphone tonight, and I could say, Tommy Reese, huh, seems kind of average as grits to me. I could say that. I don't necessarily believe that, but I could say that. Or I could say, hmm, not knowing anything more about the situation than I do, but observing two of the best minds in the sport, both coveting the same guy, perhaps benefit of the doubt should lie on the side of the fence they coach on instead of the side of the fence that I sit on. Now, you're free to disagree with that. You're free to have your opinion. I'm sure a lot of people will have one. I'm more interested in the defensive coordinator hire he makes, frankly, because I think there's a little more drama. There's a little more intrigue on that side of the ball. I just think he's going to make a coordinator hire whenever he's ready to on the offensive side. Maybe it very well will be Tommy Reese. I saw Football Scoop, I think, reported earlier tonight that the offer had been made. Uh, the other thing I do not know, I have no inclination whatsoever about you know, how hard Tommy Reese will be to pry from his alma mater, which is Notre Dame, where he's at right now. Uh, Brian Kelly couldn't do it. There is, there is very, very rarely an instance where Nick Saban offers a job and someone turns him down. I guess it's happened. It's just very rare. Uh, most of the time, he won't offer it. If, if he, and I'm talking about a real offer, not an offer where you're winking and nodding at a mutual agent to get a guy a raise somewhere else. That's not a real offer. But real offers, when they go out from Nick Saban, are normally moves of formality. So has Tommy Reese got the offer? We'll see. And is he willing to take the offer? We'll also see. They're watching us in Gaffney, South Carolina. They're watching us in New Albany, Mississippi, and Dallas, Texas. Has Dallas thawed out yet? We got a little bit of freezing rain in Nashville, but woof. I bet some folks are still sitting on the side of the road out there. Freezing rain is no joke, man. Um, bold prediction time. This will not be nearly the crawl of shame that last episode was for me when it comes to bold predictions. But we got five of them from August. What did you believe in back in August? And how did it turn out for you? The first, not so good. But it could have been. If you just changed the wording here, this could have turned out so much better. Here was the prediction from Kenny. Texas will embarrass Alabama in week two. Yeah, Kenny, you could have just said they'll upset them. They almost did. It was a one-point game. We were there. It was 1,000 degrees on the field. And Quinn Ewers goes down, and you still almost beat him. But, Kenny, you didn't say upset. You said they're going to embarrass him. They were a three-touchdown underdog, were the Texas Longhorns, in this game. And yet they still almost won. I think at the time, we defined embarrass as Texas is going to need to win by two touchdowns. So that was a net difference of five touchdowns from what the point spread was. That wasn't going to happen. Now, the argument I will listen to is if Quinn Ewers doesn't get hurt, maybe they beat Bama that day. Certainly could have been the case. I have here the results of Texas's offensive possessions that game. They started on a 10-0 run, right? Because they field goal and touchdown with Quinn Ewers. Then he gets hurt. <clears throat> Here's what it sounded like afterwards. Punt, punt, turnover on downs, punt, punt, field goal, field goal, punt, field goal, end of game. Not nearly as dramatic as a Dan Rubenstein drive chart reading, but poignant nonetheless, I think. So Texas, there was no embarrassment of Alabama, and I put a 9.99 boldness scale rating on that, so thankfully that one hit. We didn't have a Texas A&M part two 
on that particular prediction. Next up, uh, this one was doomed to failure. Uh, Michigan wins eight or less games this season, and Harbaugh is back on the hot seat. Michigan went 12-0 and in the regular season. Michigan won the Big Ten Championship. They ended up going 13-1 and overall. And you have a sour taste in your mouth because of what happened against TCU. Still can't believe that happened, by the way, but it did. But nevertheless, the prediction was they, they win eight games or less. No, never was going to happen. And they were winning comfortably. There are very few close games even on this list. I think, though, the reason I only put an eight and a half on the boldness rating here is because remember where we were at the time. At the time, we were coming off a season in which Michigan had done something they had never done under Jim Harbaugh. They beat Ohio State. They won the Big Ten. They went to the playoff. Okay, none of those things had happened. Then Harbaugh interviews for the Vikings job and doesn't get it. He loses both coordinators. And it was fair to ask ourselves, are they really just going to maintain the trajectory they were on, which was historic, or could they drop off? And apparently the prediction there fell into the latter category. Yeah, they're going to drop off. Well, they didn't. I don't think it was the most out-of-this-realm possibility to suggest that yeah, maybe they will fall off, but they didn't, and so that one fell by the wayside. But I get it. I at least get the logic there. Next up, this one was tough, too. Chase, Chase, Chase. He said in year one under a new staff, Oklahoma will have both a higher-ranked offense and defense than last year. Chase is just looking down the barrel of losing Caleb Williams, eventual Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, Mario, he lost a ton of guys, lost the head coach, Lincoln Riley, and go and get Brent Venables. They're just going to upgrade both sides of the ball. I put an eight on this. It should have been an 80. This was not going to happen, and it didn't. Neither side of the ball improved. They both declined. Yes, even defense declined. Oklahoma in 2021, offensive comparison, nearly 39 points per game. They had 32.7 this year, downgrade. Defensively, Oklahoma in 2021 allowed 25.8 points per game. This last year, they allowed 30. So again, both sides downgraded, and their record went from 11-2 to 6-7. and seven. That's the bad news. And that is where the prediction went splat, like street pizza all over the sidewalk. However, we don't want to leave it on a sour note. So let's remember, much like Mario down at Miami, yeah, year one may have been an utter, unmitigated disaster, but they're recruiting well. They're getting their players. And now the last two classes for Oklahoma have been rated eighth and fourth. That's better than Lincoln Riley was doing. In fact, that's better than pretty much anyone has done there over a two-year stretch. Um, this, this era, this millennium. They're getting really good players. I mean, look at Oklahoma, fourth-rated class in the country. Texas and OU both killed it this recruiting cycle. We'll see. How much can you upgrade in one season? We'll see. Overall rankings, recruits plus transfers. Now, I know that some of you are just hearing that or looking at the graphic if you're watching on YouTube, and that's kind of just minutia. Pay attention to what that means. That is a combination. In other words, this is the actual raw metric of all the players coming in. Not just recruits, but kids you're getting out of the portal. So it is a true talent acquisition rating. And Oklahoma's second in the Big 12, Texas is first. So most of the time it looks like the recruiting rankings, but sometimes if you have a, a disproportionately large transfer portal class, um, it could get baked in there and you could vault up or down. The next prediction is really, really bad too. Some bad predictions tonight. Fortunately, I didn't make them. However, I kind of endorsed this one. And for that, I apologize. Uh, CFB Home said, Texas A&M will not win more than nine regular season games. Now, we already touched on that, and he made one about Louisville too, but we chose the middle one. And the middle one was Nebraska starts the season 6-0 and heading into the Purdue game. 6-0 and is what we need to be going to Purdue, huh? They lost week one to Northwestern. They got by North Dakota in week two. They lost in Lincoln to Georgia Southern under first-year head coach Clay Helton in week three. Also, the head coach, Scott Frost, fired after that game. They lost to Oklahoma 
with big noon kickoff in town. They lost 49-14 to in Week 4. Then they rallied to beat Indiana. They beat Rutgers. So they went into the Purdue game 3-3. Three and three. Then they proceeded to go on a five-game losing streak there. Uh, the result was 4-8. and eight, Not a shot and you know what of this ever coming to fruition. And lastly, we head out to the great state of Utah. And that is for this prediction. Brigham Young will defeat not only Oregon, but also Stanford. So they're just going to kind of sweep the Pac-12. They did half of it. They did beat Stanford. In fairness, Hoopst didn't this past season. But they lost to Oregon 41-20, to had an 8-5 and finish. Honestly, that's not the biggest takeaway here. I told you we're going to the great state of Utah for a reason. We had a conundrum earlier today. Jesse comes to me out of breath and says, we got problems. But what is it, Jesse? I can't find a logo for Utah Tech. I said, Utah? He said, no, 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 Utah Tech. I said, Utah, I've never heard of her. Who is she? Utah Tech, located in St. George, Utah. We couldn't find a logo for her. And so we put a college football logo. There's a little man throwing a football, and that is the Utah Tech logo. And the news gets worse for the fine folks at Utah Tech because they got half a hundo hang on. So it's just a bad news night for Utah Tech. Or, glass half full, palace half full, as Meemaw would say, Utah Tech, you may be located halfway to Russia, but at least you got in the show tonight. And that's what counts, after all. You had fun, you won. I want to get to this question, Colin, since I picked up the chalice, though I need to take a sip. Very good. Good consistency tonight. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We got a question we get quite a lot. I decided, let's go ahead and put it on the show tonight then. Hmm. So Dexter hit us up. He said, I grew up as an NFL fan. And while I've come to like college football, it still doesn't quite match Sunday to me. What would you say is the biggest appeal for being a bigger college football fan than an NFL fan? Laredo, Texas. Thank you, Dexter, for watching. We will convert you in time. But until then, I'll tell you what makes it better for me. I'm not a person who has any problem with the NFL. I'm not like anti-NFL. I don't ever get to watch it because Sundays are our busiest work day during the season. But even before I started working in, in this industry, I watched college football and loved it way more than NFL. A, a lot of us from the South, it just comes down to upbringing. I mean, a lot of us did not grow up with an NFL team in our backyard. And for those of us from Georgia... It's a very, very, it's a complicated relationship with the Falcons. And anyone from Georgia knows exactly what I'm talking about. So if, if I grew up in Wisconsin, I would eat, sleep, and breathe Green Bay Packer football. I, I pretty much know that about myself. But I didn't. I grew up in the South. And so in the South, it's a lot different. You grew up in Alabama or Mississippi or Arkansas or Tennessee up until the Oilers relocated. And that's... In, in sports terms, still a pretty recent happening. It's only been like, what, it's less than 25 years, or about 25 years they've been in Nashville, the Titans. So you've got like one generation of people that have grown up with that team. Anyway, it's just a, an upbringing thing. So Saturdays are the, the crux of your football week. And then Sundays, I, I watched the NFL when I was growing up. I like the NFL, still do. It just, it wasn't Saturday. So it could just be upbringing. But there's another thing that I used to always get preached to me. And if you're 16 years old, you're going to listen to this and you may laugh, especially if you're a diehard college football fan and you follow the day-to-day -day workings of the sport. You know, a lot of people like college football because they romanticize the concept of amateurism. Listen to you laughing already. Hold on a second. Let me tell you what that means. Amateurism is exactly what it sounds like, doing something and not really getting paid for it. You're laughing again, and I don't blame you. Uh, amateurism is, is, is more concept, uh, more of a 
a woebegone fantasy than it is the reality of college athletics at the highest levels these days. And some would argue, well, it was never fully amateur athletics. Yeah, okay. I think what we're trying to say is left tackles weren't being paid $15 million in college football ever. And so a lot of people, especially if you grew up loving the sport, had it taught to them that when you watch these guys on Saturday, they didn't get drafted to go where they are. They had a choice, and they chose to go play for whoever they play for, and there's a lot more love of the game. You know, there's a lot more just raw passion. They're not playing for the money. They're playing for pride. And they may have money in their future, but right now on this Saturday afternoon, they're still kids. They're still students, and you could scoff at that, but I'm not making fun of it because there, there is a certain aspect of that that's beautiful, and at least when you lay it out on a piece of paper, there's some purity to it. There's some innocence to it. And, you know, then someone gave me a VHS copy of the movie The Program, and then I learned what college athletics was really like. But still, I think that the amateurism versus professional model, I think that has something to do with it. But look, here's really what it comes down to. If you don't care about either one of those two things, what game day experience means in college football dwarfs what professional football brings to you. And really, that's what I think draws a great big amount of people to the college game. The tailgating scene in college football is out of this world. And I know we got some folks in upstate of New York and in and around the greater Philadelphia area, Kansas City. I'm not telling you guys you don't know what you're doing when it comes to tailgating. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's a big difference being around kids versus being around slightly disgruntled 46-year-old dudes who just had a bad week at work and they really want to take their frustration out in the parking lot on a table. There's just a difference. Both can have fun, but the tailgating scene in college football land is a lot different than NFL land. And also, and producer Jesse made this point, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is there with or without the Eagles on, on Sundays and anywhere in between. Likewise with Pittsburgh. Likewise with Detroit. Uh, likewise with Cleveland. You don't know about Ann Arbor, Michigan. If you didn't go to school there, you don't really know anything about Ann Arbor. You don't know anything about State College. What do you know about Athens, Georgia, if you didn't associate it with University of Georgia football or Penn State football or Michigan football? And when you go to those towns, it may be tough to get in there sometimes. I do it every week. Trust me, it may be tough to get in there. That's because they don't have big city infrastructure. Everything about the town revolves around the university. And in many cases, it really revolves around the football program. Uh, the, biggest, the biggest spectacle, sort of the central location in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, for example, is Bryant-Denny Stadium. You can look at your map or you can just describe campus to someone. And inevitably, when you're describing campus, it's here's where this place is in relation to our stadium. That's not the way it is in NFL cities. And that's a testament to how big an event a Saturday in the fall is to a college football town as opposed to, outside of Green Bay, Wisconsin, NFL cities. And I think that that has appeal to a lot of people. I'm not saying it's bad to play in a big city. USC does. UCLA does. What I'm saying is I think it appeals to people. The more small town collegiate experience. I think it appeals to people. Uh, pageantry and tradition, though. This is where it, it hits home for me. Uh, pageantry and tradition, doing the same things today that in many cases you did in 1958, the same cheers, the same jerseys in many cases, uh, the same pregame and postgame traditions. I don't know. That stuff means something to me. I've just, when I've, I, again, like I said, I've, I've, I watch both, but I love one of them. And it means something to me when I look at college football and I know the game is not restricted and confined to the field. In the NFL, you're pretty much getting everything you need to get inside the lines. In college football, the story only just begins to be told when you're watching what's happening on the field. College football is about so much more than what just happened on second and four. I mean, if you can travel with me, you, and many of you are in stadiums every week, but if you could get the vantage point I get, which is the best in the world, you'd, you'd know, if, especially if you were kind of agnostic to our game, 
and like the like Dexter, and you just asked a question, what what is it about college? You probably just haven't experienced it. If I could take you on tour with me for a year or half a year, maybe just a month, and take you to four different venues in four weeks, in, inevitably when a big game's in town, nothing like it. And also, I think rivalries in college football dwarf the intensity and animosity and over-the-cliff mentality of what you see in pro sports. That's my feel on that. I, I certainly understand when you get like an Eagles-Giants or, or a Cowboys-Giants. I understand. It's not pleasant. I get that. I watch it. You're not explaining anything to me I don't know. But you're talking to someone who's been on the field the last two years for Michigan-Ohio State. I've probably been on the field from like half a dozen or more Iron Bowls, easily more than half a dozen. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a scary environment. And it's scary in a way that you look up in the stands and you wonder how members of the opposing team's fan bases can feel safe coming in here. I have vividly recalled for you a time or two the first game I ever went to at Tiger Stadium in Death Valley. Uh, LSU, by the way. And it was the first time <clears throat> I saw Nick Saban go into LSU. And I remember walking through the tailgating areas and walking into the venue in the building before it opened for the public. And I remember thinking to myself, I can't imagine wearing crimson. Like if I were wearing crimson right now, I, I would feel so uncomfortable and so worried for my safety because I had someone with me too. I was there covering the game. And so I remember thinking to myself, there's no way that this really exists like I'm feeling right now outside of college football to this degree. Home field advantage means something, especially in these bigger venues. You don't have venues that size in the NFL on Sundays. You don't. They've been outfitted for comfort instead of size. And that's okay. It's a money-making venture. Everything they do on Sundays is to make money. And increasingly, that's how this sport operates. I think a lot of us love aspects of this sport that we would, just, we would like to cling to it a little bit. It's not always wrong to cling to things that are great. It's not always a bad thing. You know, some things we've done for quite a while in this sport, we've done for quite a while because they're good. It's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it is, but it's not always a bad thing. Um, there's, you know, there, there's also another thing. I haven't done any research on this. I just, I'm curious. I know the NFL has to have done research on this, but I haven't. I've always been curious how many people are diehard NFL fans that are not a fan of a team, which would have sounded ridiculous in 1997. But with the proliferation of fantasy sports and gambling, I think really fantasy sports more so than gambling, but with the proliferation of both and the legalization of gambling, uh, in many states, and eventually it will be all states. I wonder how many people are drawn to rooting for players. This has been the case in the NBA for a while too, but in the NFL, I just, I don't get that sense in college. Yeah, you, you can bet on college football. College fantasy is not nearly as big as pro fantasy. And as a result, I think when you watch someone who is diehard into it on Saturdays, there is a rooting interest. There's one team out there at least that is their team. And in the NFL, you go to your average sports bar on a Sunday afternoon, you're going to have fans of teams. Make no mistake. But you're going to have a healthy population in there that really couldn't care less who wins. They just want to make sure that Jones over here at wide receiver has more than 37 and a half receiving yards before halftime because that's their prop bet. Uh, some of you may even be betting parlays. And shame on you if you are. Because uh, that is the devil's tool. Even within sports betting, that parlays are the devil's tool. But I... I don't get that in college, and that's why, that's why I love that in college, too. So there's a lot of stuff, Dexter, that people like me love about the college game, more so than the pro game. I'm sure there are counter-arguments that our brethren on Sundays could make. Um, I've just always been of the opinion, pick whatever you want to watch, and you don't have to restrict yourself to just one thing. Believe it or not, you can do both. With that in mind, I think we're going to wrap the show for tonight. Now remember, I guess it's not exactly pressing, because we'll be back here Sunday night, but we are... Five days away from the Late Kick Extra podcast coming back. In exchange for that, there is a bargain. There is a trade-off. That means we're shifting back to our regular season format on Late Kick Live. 
So starting next week, it'll be Sundays and Thursdays. And then, whereas you would have normally gotten a Tuesday night live show, instead, check that podcast feed and you'll have a Late Kick Extra podcast edition. So I guess if you're not already following on the podcast side of things, just go wherever you listen to your pods, search Late Kick, and subscribe to that bad boy. And you have done, at that point, everything that you need to do. For producer Jesse, for director Colin, I'm Josh Bates. Have a great start to your weekend. Take care. Thanks for watching, and God bless.